Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. One of the first pieces of Broadway trivia that I really grasped onto when I was younger was that in 1957 at the Tony Awards, the two musicals that were up for best musical were The Music Man and West Side Story. Mm. And The Music Man won. And for me as a youngster, I could not believe that that was the case. West Side Story that has this kind of score and this kind of dancing to tell this tragic story right. with very real and serious issues, that that would lose to something as fluffy as the Music Man. And that was the thing that I touted and marched around with for many, many years. I have since eaten a couple slices of humble pie <laughs> offered to me by people that I respect uh, through conversations that have helped me to realize that Music Man is the better show, and mm. I think that the Tony Awards got it right. Even though I th- personally like West Side Story more, and maybe I feel that it was more courageous, I think in terms of construction, mm-hmm. I think the Music Man's kind of a perfect show. Yeah, a lot of people would agree with you on that, I think. <laughs> but what I think we're going to do here today is talk about how the Music Man is more than just fluff. Right. And how it's quite intelligent and remarkably Mm well-constructed musical theater. So let's get started. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. And today I have Terry Bibb sitting across from me. Terry, you need to know that sometimes when I need an ego boost, I remind myself that I'm pals with Terry Bibb. Oh, my gosh. That's so nice of you to say. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. You're like... Like a queen of American musical theater sopranos. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. I always hate interview shows where you, where they interview really talented people and they say, "You're incredible." How does how does that feel? How does it feel <laughs> to be so incredible? <laughs> it's just uh, Cheetah Rivera's like, um, I'm. I think I'm. I think I'm good. Uh, One of my favorite times that I got to see you perform, though, was when we were both in Michigan. Shout out to our friends at Farmer's Alley. Farmer's Alley. Yeah. 
and they had brought you out to do your one-woman show. Right. Um, remind me the name of it. Uh, Once Upon a Song. And it's really stunning. Oh, a, Like an elegant, beautiful evening of, of music that spotlights um, women. The, the great women of movie musicals, which yeah. was my introduction to the art form. So, yeah. And you're, you sound glorious, and, you, and one of my favorite things that you say after... Is it a Catherine Grayson song? You, you're like, these women just sang so, so high. freaking high. <laughs> yeah. That's the challenge of doing a one-woman show, especially for a 90 minutes, you know, two 45-minute acts, is just finding a place to take a drink of water. And, you know, <laughs> chill. I have strategically placed a piano solo or a little video clip here and there, so there's just not dead air while I'm like, just watch me drink for a minute here. <laughs> and you even get to change costumes. I do. Well, I like, to, I like my gowns. <laughs> As you should. If I uh, if I could have a gown closet, I would. I yeah, think. I definitely have a gown closet. Do you? <laughs> yes. That makes me so happy. So over your career, how many times have you done The Music Man? Seven different productions. Okay. And Man. like, when was the first? The first was uh, 98. So over a 20-year span, actually, which is kind, wow. of, kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, 98, I did a little tour of the Southwest uh, with Barry Williams of the Brady Bunch oh, fame as yeah. Harold Hill. Oh, my gosh. Um, and that was my first time doing the role, which is, uh, I had auditioned for it a couple of times prior to that, but I had not gotten it. And so that was my first time. How fun. Yeah. Did you immediately like it? I did. Yeah. yeah. I mean. I mean, had you seen I mean, you'd seen it I had before. seen it. I had seen I'd seen a grown up on the movie, of course. Um, wanted to be Shirley Jones when I was growing up. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I, she's wonderful in that she, movie. Oh, she's magnificent. Yeah. She really is. She's great in everything she, she did. And, and you know, and the, one of the last times that I did Music Man was actually with her. Oh. I did. Was she play Widow Peru? She did. She played Aww. my mom. It was a, uh, a semi-concert version, another tour that I did in 2014. 14, uh, where she played my mom, uh, and they, they. she also did some narration. She told a few stories. She stepped oh. in and out of the, oh, the show. She put on an apron and became Widow Peru, and then she would take it off and be Shirley again and tell anecdotes. And um, uh, we tweaked it a little bit so that when I sang Goodnight, My Someone, I sang it with her. Lovely. Yeah, to her and with her. We sang the little duet at the end that I use usually with Amaryllis because it was a very condensed concert version of the show with just eight adults. There were no children. Oh, wow. uh, we picked up a Winthrop in every town. Oh, we that's were a in, great idea. That would just come on and sing Wealth Fargo Wagon. Sure. <laughs> for everybody. Wow. And we actually opened in Iowa. Uh, no yeah, way. In the, so we got to tour the Meredith Wilson house. And, in Mason, is it Mason City? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was really fun. And Patrick Cassidy, Shirley's son, was Harold in that Great version. casting. Yeah. All right. Let's 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 talk a little bit about Meredith Wilson since you got to tour and maybe you can throw some things out that, that maybe you saw while you were there. I think The Music Man, which has music lyrics and book by one person, yeah. which is... Very unusual. Very unusual for musical theater. And granted, he, I, I, it's well documented that he had some help. But still, to be in charge of all of those things in musical is incredible and kind of a lightning bolt in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually but, spells disaster, by sure, the way. Yeah, sure, sure. Usually if you hear that the same person is doing all three, you're like, oh. Mm, you need somebody, you <laughs> yeah. need another set of eyes. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think it's a great example of writing what you know. Mm-hmm. Because he's born in Iowa, right? And his mentor Frank Lesser was always 
telling him how much he enjoyed hearing him talk about the Iowa way of life, mm-hmm. the people that he grew up with. So he obviously has a kind of natural propensity to tell stories about where he comes mm-hmm. from. Boom, right there. He becomes a very accomplished piccolo player and flute player and plays in the John Philip Sousa band That's right. as well as the New York Philharmonic. <laughs> so, wow, right there, exposure to exposure to John Philip Sousa, which a lot of the score is, mm-hmm. you know, basically sounds like Stars and Stripes Forever. <laughs> After that, he moves to Hollywood and starts working in the film industry. He becomes a composer for film, gets an Academy Award nomination for The Great Dictator, which was a Charlie Chaplin film, uh, the William Wyler Little Foxes he also does as well, both of which receive Academy Award nominations. From there, he goes into radio, which is hilarious because I feel like most Broadway composers start in Broadway and then realize, oh, I can make much more money in Hollywood, and it was <laughs> right. kind of the opposite for Meredith <laughs> right. Wilson. He starts in Hollywood, then goes to radio. He hosts several shows, and then eventually finds himself working on a a radio show called The Big Show, which was hosted by Tallulah Bankhead, who's, you know, such a character. And he decides that for the commercials for this show, instead of just breaking for a commercial and having somebody read copy, that he was going to have a chorus speak uh, these commercials in rhythm, almost like a rap. Oh, my gosh. Right? So, which is... Also laying the groundwork for a lot of the, the musical conceits that he came up with for the Music Man. So between all of those things, where he comes from, the music that he's exposed to, and the discoveries that he makes while working in radio, really all come together to kind of inform how one person could write this right. entire musical. It's also said, however, that Franklin Lacey, who I don't know, but apparently helped him quite a bit with the story. He only took story credit, but he right. he helped with the show. And then, I didn't know this, but when I was recording an episode with Michael Betts uh, last week mm-hmm. about the Hello, Dolly, and we were talking about ghost composers that come in and write different songs for shows without credit mm-hmm. in the score— and I asked what his favorite one is of of those rumored songs, and he said it's My White Knight. That it was written by Frank Lesser with help from Meredith Wilson. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. And, and I was like, really? Like, I had never heard that. <laughs> I, I thought it was crazy. And then while revisiting the film... That's really the only difference mm-hmm. is My White Knight is replaced with that other song. Uh, what yes. is it? It's so, to me, it's so forgettable. I right. Yeah, because My White Knight is so... It's so beautiful and perfect. Yeah. So it's like, okay, why would Meredith Wilson replace My mm-hmm. White Knight with something if it wasn't for the fact that maybe he just didn't feel comfortable with Frank Lesser's song being right. in the score? It still has that the the bridge... All I want is a mm-hmm. All I want is a plain man, an yeah. honest man. Mm-hmm. So maybe that was his part, and then the ooh, excuse me, <laughs> Mike, and then the Frank Lesser part was the refrain. I don't know. Oh yeah, but but I'd say that that's my favorite part. Is that is that little interview is it? in the middle there where you she go, sits Meredith. and says what she wants? And I like, and I would like him to be more interested in me than he is in himself, uh. and more interested in us than in me. I think that's such a telling line and one of the most beautiful beautiful parts of that, of that song. Fast forwarding, Meredith <clears throat> Wilson 
sets up camp in Brentwood, California, just down the freeway from us. And he went to church at this United Congregation in Christ or something like that. And he donated money to have a stained glass window installed right above the pew where he sat and it had and its musical instruments. So like he's the music man. And it's still there. And so I, at some point I'm gonna oh like make a trip to Mecca over the next couple of weeks and, <laughs> and sit go in the pew. Yeah, and go see the the uh-huh. Meredith Wilson stained glass window. Oh, he must have been there a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To want to like want that there. The entire rest of his life, I mm-hmm. guess. Because after Music Man he writes Unsinkable Molly Brown, mm-hmm. which is a hit. I mean, it's not a sensation in the way that Music Man has become, right. but it's a hit for, on both stage and in film. Mm-hmm. I do like that show. Have you seen it? I, I have. Yeah. I, I love the movie as well, and um, um, I have seen a couple of productions of the show. I know that they're trying to revive it with Beth Malone. Oh, and, what a great idea. Yeah. And kind of restructuring the book a little bit. Because mm-hmm. I think one of the big problems, at least that they faced on stage originally, was that the climax of the whole story is the Titanic. Right. And it's only one little scene with, like, uh, they're on the lifeboats mm-hmm. the, at, toward the end of the second act. And she's right. like, don't give up! And then blackout. <laughs> <laughs> so right. if, if you can make something more of that... Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I have big hopes. Then he also does a musical version of... A miracle on 34th Street. Right. Which is a kind of a flop. Doesn't yeah. do anything. And that's about it. That's all he does in musical I thought theater. there was one more is there? that I'm forgetting. I could be forgetting, too. Because at the home that we toured in Mason City, there was a piano with some music on it that they put there as props, you know. Shoot. Not actually his music or his writing, but sure. something that they went to the music store and bought. And oh, okay. Put there, you know, to, to demonstrate. And I thought, and I have a memory of uh, vocal selections from a musical and me thinking, oh, I didn't know he wrote that. But oh, now, of course, I can't think of what it was. He also did, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. He probably made some money from that. I, I, right <laughs> I don't know what, ro- what Christmas royalties classic. were like back then. But. Oh, but I'm sure. Yeah. So that's Meredith Wilson. He, it takes him eight years to write this show. Mm-hmm. 40 drafts, so many different songs. That's when all of, I think, the help from his mentors and friends kind of came in to help him figure out what, what it was going to be. Um, when it's all ready to be produced, now they're trying to find the cast. And they've got this guy named Morton DaCosta, who's going to be the director. And I just learned his name in preparation for this episode. I didn't know who directed The Music Man, mm-hmm. but it's this guy <laughs> named Mort. And he also directed the film version, mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of crazy. Usually that doesn't happen where the, the Broadway director is, right. you know, transfers to Hollywood. They get Anna White as choreographer, mm-hmm. and they are then looking for a Harold Hill and a Marion the Librarian. Marion, from the get-go, I think is Barbara Cook, because Morin DaCosta had directed Plain and Fancy, which she was in. Right. Um, and then she the, the season before, she had made the huge splashes, Cunagunda. In right. Candide, have you have you ever had to sing Glitter and Piquet? No, I actually uh, worked on it um, a lot when I was 
I was back in the days when I was touring with Phantom, and they were getting ready for the revival that Hal oh. was directing. And since I was working with Hal presently, I was a handful of actresses that you know were at the top of the list for, that he wanted to see. Awesome. Um, but I, you know, t- touring is hard on you, and singing yeah. Christine, uh, you know. So I, I found it just this just a skosh too high really if it had been a half step down you know if i was completely fresh and rested but i but i could sing it i could sing the those high e's mm-hmm. at the end but um uh, or they were e flats e flats because we had an e in phantom but it was just one <laughs> when but is it is it in think of me it's oh it's uh it's um uh in the cadences the Ah, oh, oh. And she sings three C's in a row, and then she sings an E. But we only had to do that once. Nice. And this this was a lot of E flats at the end of a very long, difficult aria, uh, just over and over and over. And I just found it just a little bit too challenging. That's I my exhausting. hats off to anybody. And and I think it's a very specific voice type that 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 is easy for. Right. And know? Barbara Cook was a. I mean, she was a light soprano. Well, but she was also really versatile. Yeah. And and the way she um, continued her career into her late, later years and just morphed Sweet. into this um, cabaret chanteuse, mm-hmm. you know, she sings with such feeling and such emotion. I, I mean, she was always my idol. That's who I wanted to sing like. Really? Yeah. What music man, She Loves Me, what were your favorite? She Loves Me especially. Yeah? I mean, that, that to me, that is the quintessential soprano role. I mean, great spirit, incredible songs, and unbelievable book scenes. Um, I've done that show four times, I think. Including and, New York. Uh, yeah, that's how I made my Broadway debut. Aww. I was I was the standby, um, and so I got to do it, I think, 11 times totally. Oh, that's awesome. um, and I quit Phantom. Uh, we were at the Kennedy Center at the time. I quit that to do She Loves Me on Broadway. Uh, I have recorded... Uh, three episodes at this point, and all of them have included She Loves Me. <laughs> it's, like, it's just the perfect, to me, it's the perfect little jewel it of is, a musical. It is a I little I love jewel. it so much. It really is. You're totally right. I might have to have you back, and we'll do a She Loves Me. <laughs> I love it so much. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Barbara Cook signs on for Marion. Now they're looking for Harold Hill, which is kind of the, <laughs> the crux that the entire show right. lands on. And she says in her biography that when she went to listen to the score for the first time, that she was there to hear the score and Andy Griffith was there. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So he he was a possibility. They had also offered it to Gene Kelly, who had turned it down. A lot of people turned it down. Ray Bolger really wanted to do it, but who is a you know fantastic mm-hmm. song and dance man, but... Maybe not much sex appeal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that they passed on him and ultimately gave it to Robert Preston, who at this point was not known as being a musical kind of guy. He was a he was a Hollywood actor, mostly in westerns. <laughs> so he's kind of making his musical theater debut as Harold Hill <laughs> and just owns it. And when you there's such an elegance about him. Yeah. And uh, such a musical energy, it's hard to believe that he... Because he seems like he's totally in his element. Yeah, 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 completely. That's exactly how I should have said it. When you've done the show, what would you say the biggest requirements are of the guy playing Harold Hill? Like, what makes a great Harold Hill? Uh, uh, confidence and charm and 
swagger, but there also has to be a uh, an underlying sincerity. There has to be an underlying vulnerability, if you will, because he can't be too slick because then he comes off as smarmy and he does some rather unappealing yeah. <laughs> things. Yeah. And so you, ha- you have to have that vulnerability and um, uh, softness to undercut that so that you see him through the eyes that that Marion and Winthrop and ultimately the, the entire town mm-hmm. sees him in. I think that is the dreamer quality, right? Because yes. more than anything, he's right. this, this dreamer who... He believes it in... Yeah. yeah. He, he's he selling them believes. a tall tale, but he always, there's always a band. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go through the plot a little bit, just kind of go through the show mm-hmm. and talk about our favorite moments or maybe even the moments you don't, you don't care for. But <laughs> the show begins with this, like I said, this John Philip Sousa overture, which then gives way to an opening number that has no underscoring whatsoever. And that feels revolutionary to me. Yeah. That there is an opening number of a musical that has no music. Right. And it's quite lengthy. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And it establishes a lot of what's happening without being obviously uh, exposition, you know, related. It's I think it's a brilliant piece. It's and it's one brilliant. of the more challenging numbers of the piece and one that is rehearsed more <laughs> than many numbers in the show. You get your you get your call for the next day, and, yeah, it, and, and like, oh, they're doing the train uh, scene again. Oh, the salesmen are called, yeah, because it's just challenging. It's it's uh, it's exposed. Yeah, uh, it uh, every everyone has equal weight. You know, they all, and you cannot lose your focus. <laughs> you yeah. have to you have to really um, keep your ears open and not because one just takes one falter for the whole train to become derailed. So. To speak, you know, you lose that rhythm and the and the whole. Now, in addition, in addition to being an amazing actress and soprano, you're a, an amazing proofreader <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, little known fact. A little known fact. <laughs> you're really good at grammar, and I'm wondering is there is there a definition of a is it onomatopoeia? Where it's it a, sounds like a word that sounds like what it is. Yeah. Yes. In a way. This number in and of itself is the train. Is a train. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Even the words that he's used. Yeah, even though, what do you talk? What do you mm-hmm. talk? That's the clickety click. Yes, clickety-click. sir. Oh, yeah. Yes, That's sir. Uh-huh. And so all of these salesmen are on the train, right? And they're talking about being salesmen. And they're, since they're on a train, it's almost as though. The the chug, mm-hmm. the momentum of the train has taken over the pattern and patter of speech that they're using right. to communicate with each other. And during the number, we find out about this guy, Harold Hill, who has made it kind of impossible for any other salesman in the Midwest because he goes in and swindles people out of their money and then runs out of town. And so then the next guy who comes in basically gets tarred and feathered and, and shut away. So all of the all of these stories and rumors are being passed around among this train full of salesmen. And then when it comes to stop in River City, Iowa, a guy stands up and says, you know what, I think I'm going to give this place a try. And it turns out Harold Hill's been sitting there the whole time. Now, they're doing a revival, right, with Hugh Jackman in New York. And I'm just wondering how they're going to do this because there's no way that an audience in 2019 that's seen Music Man as much as it is is going to be doing anything but trying to spot where Hugh Jackman is on that train. Right. 
Because it, you know what I mean? I wonder if they're just going to do it traditionally, if they're going to find out. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, typically what they do is put his back, you know, so he's mostly in profile or even three-quarter away from the audience right. or with, his, with a hat on or sometimes even a newspaper. But that becomes obvious if he's the only one not like, speaking. Exactly. Unless they add more salesmen that don't speak. To, uh, yeah. to just have, like, Winthrop with a suit. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very short sentence sitting there. Yeah. So anyway, I really want to, I'm really curious to see what they do. That gives way to kind of the opening number of Iowa, which Mm -hmm. is called Iowa Stubborn. Now, we talked about spending some time in Michigan. That was my first time in the Midwest. Mm. But it sounds like you've been on tour a lot. So where are you from originally? I I was born in Texas and grew up in Oklahoma. Oh, wait, where in Texas? A Big Spring, a little town. (gasps) What? Do you know Big Spring? You're kidding. You don't know Big Spring. That's where I serve my mission. Really? Yes. That's insane. That's crazy. <laughs> I I would go to Big Spring for my like my district meetings because and it was and I was in an even smaller town called Big Lake, which is like sixty <laughs> miles north. Which or is south. hilarious because a lake is bigger than a spring. <laughs> <laughs> go figure. What's funny about Big Lake is there is neither a lake uh-huh. nor is it big. Right. And I was there in that little town, and we would uh, we had a car, but you were only allowed to drive so many miles in the car if you didn't have a bike. So. We would save all of our miles because we would have to drive to Big Spring each week. And then while we were up there, we would go to Walmart because (laughs) there there weren't any... The grocery stores in Big Lake were just so expensive because of the inflation. You know, you're like, you're just this tiny town. And so the little local store has Golden Grams for $6 a box. Like, it's insane. Uh, So I know Big Spring really well. That's so crazy. That's crazy. It is crazy. Well, we were there... Because it was an Air Force town. There was an Air Force base. Webb Air okay. Force base. Was, my father was Air Force. And so, career Air Force. So, we lived there till I was four. And then we moved to Tacoma, Washington. And that's where my little sister was born. And then in the middle of the fourth grade, after my dad got back from Vietnam, we moved to a little town, Altus, Oklahoma. Oh, which my gosh. Is another Air Force town. Wow. Which, there's still a base there. Um, and that's where I went to grade school, junior high, high school. And so do you consider yourself like an Oklahoma gal? Well, like? yeah. I mean, in the, in that that's where I spent my formative years, for yeah. sure. And then I went to OCU, Oklahoma City University. Oh. Um, so, yeah, I think of myself more of as – but also I've lived so many places. Sure. and. Um, wanted, couldn't wait to get out, really. You know, just <laughs> sure. as a child, wanted to get out, see the world, have adventures. And so I don't really define myself in that way. I just learned more about you. I didn't <laughs> so know. Uh, so then you know the Midwest much better than I do. What, In terms of what Meredith Wilson explores in Iowa Starburn, do you kind of get what he's going for? Sh- Sure, except for I would say uh, I, I not I haven't personally had a lot of Iowa experience other than that a few times on tour. I would say that most of the Midwest has a friendlier um, uh, reputation than than his Iowans yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, like I, there was being an Air Force town, a lot of people would come to Altus from all over the country, and there was a family that had moved in from New Jersey. Uh, from the East Coast, and they walked into the United Grocery Store, and four people said, good morning, how are you today? And they freaked out and left. They were like, why are you talking to me? I don't know you. (laughs) So I think, yeah, I think it's maybe partially true with their frosty exterior, but it's also a a conceit of the show to set up that these people were not easily flim-flammed and yet... 
Or they, they, they purported to, to themselves to not be easily flim-flammed, and yet they totally. totally were. What I, my experience in the Midwest was that there's a refreshing lack of pretense. Yeah. Where in California, I think that people, I wouldn't say that people are fake, but I think that people can pretend to be nice to you because more than likely they're going to go into the, get into their cars and never see you again. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like, I can pretend to be nice because I have my own space. In New York on the East Coast, nobody has their own space. So they just don't have time to pretend (laughs) to like you. And then in the Midwest, people think, what does pretend mean? Like they just, like it's not even a a concept in terms of culture. So if they're polite then they're going to be polite and mm-hmm. friendly. And if they're not interested in you... Straightforward. This is just straightforward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, Iowa. <laughs> they they sing Iowa Stubborn, which is, like you said, establishing this group of people who seem like a challenge mm-hmm. for, uh, for Harold Hill. And he is ultimately trying to sell them a boy's band get them to buy instruments, get them to buy uniforms. He's going to teach them how to play, you know, and and be in the band. But the truth is is that he has no training. He doesn't know anything about music and has no intention of teaching them anything about music. And that he'll jump town before they figure that out. Right. So what he needs is an inn to get these people riled up. And the inn turns out to be a new pool table that's being... Well, I guess installed in the main... Yes, in the billiard parlor. In the billiard parlor downtown. And so he starts spreading this rumor that this pool table is going to turn all of the the boys in the town to destructive behavior. Mm -hmm. And they need to get them involved in some sort of wholesome activity. Like a band. Like a band. (laughs) Just Just an idea. And he does this all through another type of patter song. Is it just called Trouble? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just called Trouble. Which is a tour de force and really fun to watch. I wanted to talk a little bit about Anna White mm-hmm. at this point. Because I think that she's a choreographer that most people don't know about. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you go to see, say, The Music Man, there you will see touches of her all over the place because she came up with such an iconic right. vocabulary mm-hmm. in terms of dance. And I think the first example is right here in Trouble, with the pulses, trouble, mm-hmm. trouble, mm-hmm. trouble, or, oh, we got trouble uh-huh. with, like, the shimmery the hands. jazz hands. Uh-huh. Those are all things that she established right at the beginning, and every community theater you're going to go to is probably going to, mm-hmm. you know, lift those things very lovingly from that original stuff. But what's really interesting is that she she was nominated for Tony Awards her entire life. She never won one. Hmm. And every time she had a big hit, like The Music Man, there was always another hit that same season that had, that maybe wasn't as big, but had a more celebrated choreographic element. So, in this case, Music Man, West Side Story, right. Jerome Robbins, Robbins, right, is the one who steps forward as, like, the big choreographer of the season. She does Mame, which also is a huge, huge hit, but that same season is Sweet Charity. Mm, so Bob right. Fosse takes, yeah. like, the gold for that. And then later on, she just kind of keeps getting assigned, I don't know, assigned, or chooses these projects that just aren't very good. Mm. Like, I Love My Wife, mm. and kind of these these right. flop shows, mm-hmm. which she does quality work for, but uh, aren't hits, and 
kind of do I nothing for her. I didn't realize that she never got a, a Tony. Yeah, isn't yeah. that strange? But the Music Man is her work in that is every bit as iconic as mm-hmm. any other Hello Dolly West Side Story. Try seeing a Shapoopy that doesn't have the little you know legs back and forth right. cakewalk sort or of thing. The, uh, trombones in seventy six trombones. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I love Music Man as well because there are so many great characters. So you've got Harold Hill, you've got all the salesmen, you've got these, and then these really interesting people in Iowa, mm-hmm. all of whom have backstories and names, mm-hmm. and you've got the the mayor who is constantly trying to give his Gettysburg address <laughs> and thinks that he, like many small town governments, thinks he's much more important uh-huh. than he actually is. He always has these lines that are this close to being the right saying, but they're not. Right. He's full of malapropisms, always. Yeah, that's what... What was that? Malapropism. Wow, write it down, (laughs) podcast listeners. It might not be the correct use of that word. I don't know. Malaprops. Yeah? Yeah. Another funny thing, since I've done seven productions of it, it is often the case that the man that they have cast as Mayor Shin has trouble with <laughs> those lines. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, maybe Just it's trying be- to remember how, why uh-huh. they're wrong? Maybe maybe it's, uh, yeah, Why? What, what exactly is wrong with them? And so sometimes it's a joke within a joke as far as the <laughs> cast goes because the the line is written incorrectly and the actor can't seem to get it right. And so <laughs> can't get the incorrect right. That's kind of brilliant. Yeah, it's kind of brilliant. We had Al- dear Alan Young as our mayor, Shin, uh, Mr. Ed fame. Oh. Uh, when I did it in 98 with... Wait, was he... Was he, he Wilbur? He was, yes. Well, wasn't the horse Wilbur? Oh, no. I don't oh, know. No, the, the horse, horse was Mr. Ed. That's right. Yes, he was Wilbur. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. How cool. And he was a marvelous Marishan, but it, the, he was he also struggled with those lines, and he would like just he would just kind of stutter, just kind of stutter along until he finally got it out, and it it added it was a great quality for Marishan, and he was so endearing as a person. That's uh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, his wife is Eulalie Eulalie, which is a great character. I mean... Yeah, I the, hope to play her someday. You just graduate. <laughs> You're like, skip Widow yeah. Peru. I want to go straight <laughs> to right. Eulalie McKechnie-Shin. I love that she's three names as someone who's Jeffrey Scott Parsons. Like, yes. she she is a woman who must be called by all three names yes. every, at any moment. Uh, and she's reticent. <laughs> she, has, she has great lines as she well. She has fantastic lines. The Grecian urns. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The first time where we see her, she's participating in this patriotic Mm -hmm. display and she's kind of a conundrum in that she seems to be both dedicated to the arts and then also very judgy about them very (laughs) judgy about them right because she doesn't like Marion and her books right and yet she's constantly looking out for the welfare of the community in terms of being exposed to the arts so it's kind of it's an interesting character yeah yeah you've got all of her minions Mm-hmm. All of whom have names. The pick a little ladies. The pick a little ladies. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to me, Marcellus? Like, how do he and Harold Hill know each other? They were in business. They were. Uh, they traveled together for a period. Okay. Uh, as he was his sidekick, Marcellus was his. Uh, and and were they doing the they, the boys band at yes, that point? Yes, they were. They did okay. many things, including the the band. Okay. Uh, and then they got. They had too many close shaves for Marcellus's taste so he somehow ended up in this town kind of settling down kind of settling down leaving that life yes leaving that life behind until Greg as he knows Harold Hill Greg shows up and he says 
he's the one who tells him about the pool table. And does he know that Marcellus lives there, or is it just no, purely it's coincidence? No, it's purely coincidence. Okay. Yeah, he has no idea. Wow, that's impressive. So then he's helping Harold Hill yeah. lay the groundwork yeah. and puts him in contact with Marion. Yeah, it tells him that he won't get anywhere in this town because there's a stuck-up librarian that's also the music teacher, and she'll she'll expose you. Immediately. Yeah. But Harold Hill's like, actually, I've made it an art of yeah. wooing music teachers. Yeah. I got this, no problem. Uh-huh. He starts to try to do that, yeah. and, and Marion immediately shuts him down. Yeah. I remember going to see a production of The Music Man, and you were in the audience, and we had a little conversation afterward. And I remember just seeing how passionate you were about the character mm-hmm. in connecting to her depth, and that it's not just a typical ingenue. Mm-mm. How do you see her? Well, uh, there, are, there are a lot of theories as to how she ended up in this town. Oh, and, interesting. And how... Um, how she ended up befriending old miser Madison and inheriting this job at the library and and the books. I've worked with some directors who think Winthrop is actually her child. That okay, she, yeah. come on, people. I know. I, Interesting, I, I, yeah. though. Um, and it does become problematic as one ages in this role. <laughs> 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 to have a little brother who's 10. Who's also, that's fair. I'm like, well, let's see, I'm 40 and I have a 10-year-old boy, Widow Peru. Was, <laughs> she was fertile for a lot was, of years. <laughs> it, was a, it was a surprise. Yeah, package. so there is that element. Um, but some people just, you know, they, they read a little more into the backstory uh, as to why this happened. So I, I pr- personally just think that she um, she tells her mother she, about being backed into the library desk by Luther Greiner or somebody's removable backseat. I think she's had bad experiences with dating mm-hmm. men, and especially being um, an intelligent, uh, articulate, well-read uh, single woman of a certain age for that time period. She wasn't just going to give in to just anybody and she has standards and as her mother said way too high of standards she was never going to meet who, who, who do you expect this shine, knight in shining armor to come mm-hmm. riding up and that's why she sings my white knight to her mom to explain what she's looking for do um, you think that there is a is a degree of of men hoping that she is desperate enough to just kind of sleep with whoever? I would imagine so, but also that's why she's judged so harshly by the women in the town, is that she's she's not giving in. She's mm-hmm. not living the life that they're all expecting her. Mm-hmm. And I, I get the impression that she's more educated that I don't know if she actually went to like a... I, don't, I didn't do enough research to know if back in 19... 10, 11, 12, if there were women's colleges, I'm mm-hmm. assuming there were, that she could go for a year or two maybe and maybe maybe had a bad experience with a, a love interest or maybe it was just that her father was ill and that's why she came home to take care of her mother and her younger brother. I think, um, I think so, maybe subconsciously that's what I always felt. Yeah, yeah. That's but she's stuck in, for whatever reason, she's stuck in this provincial place that she doesn't feel she belongs. And she's a dreamer, too. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. So they they are kindred spirits, though they might not recognize it at the beginning. Right. When she comes home, there's a little girl playing the piano that she's 
because she's a librarian, but she's also a piano teacher. Yes. So she's uh, Amaryllis is the little girl, and she's there taking her piano lesson. And this is another great example of Meredith Wilson using mm-hmm. something narrative-driven to create a song. So you've got her exercises, her piano exercises, mm-hmm. and her little pieces that she's rehearsing that become the way that Widow Peru and Marion are Have this argument, yeah. And it's so smart. It is very smart. It's a great, great scene. Yeah. In it, Marion's kind of revealing all of this information about neither does anybody else in this town. <laughs> yeah. And Widow Peru's shooting down everything that she, you know, every yeah. gun in her artillery. At which point, then Winthrop, the little boy, comes in and Amaryllis tries to talk to him. It's obvious that Amaryllis has a crush mm-hmm. on him, and he won't say anything. Widopru makes him say something to say her, her say her name, which then reveals that he has this horrible lisp, and Amaryllis laughs, and then Winthrop gets angry, and then Amaryllis has the audacity to say... Why does he get so angry? And I really want Marion to be like, because you're being a dick. (laughs) Yes, you're really, yeah. Um, But they don't. Instead, they try and, like, shed some sort of... (laughs) Because I think the whole whole idea is that Amaryllis has a crush on him. And when you're in elementary school, that, that idea of making fun of somebody but also having a crush on them is... Yeah, just like little boys throwing footballs in your face when they like you. Yeah, yeah. -hmm. yeah. It makes no sense, but that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Then they sing Goodnight My Someone, Mm -hmm. which is also attached to one of her crosshand piece that that Amaryllis plays. And here is one of the the things that I kind of want to talk about. Because even though Marion is a very intelligent, you know, not at all a stereotypical character. Every song that she sings is about a man, essentially. And when we were recording the episode about Fiddler on the Roof, I kind of shared this experience that that the first time I was exposed to the show, Golda scared me. Hmm. Like, her character just seemed a little off-putting to me. And it has sent me down this road of wondering, is musical theater full of female stereotypes or women who play them like stereotypes or audience members like me who just have this really narrow idea of what women are and should act like. It's probably a combination of all three. Oh, yeah. I think it, yeah. I think it most definitely is a combination of all three. But especially for, I mean, sopranos and soprano roles... Who are usually ingenues? Like, what, what? What's your experience with that? That's a that's a very loaded question because it's something that I've struggled with, especially as I've gotten older. Um, I'm in my fifties now, and uh, the work has really dried up. That's why I created my own show. That's why I do mostly concerts now, and 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 more plays because there are more roles in plays for women um, as they get older. But for uh, musical theater women, sopranos are inevitably ingenues or young leading women. And then uh, you can stretch it a little bit, and uh, you have Anna Leon Owens and The King and I who can be a little older. Marion is often played a little older, meaning 
really into her late 30s as as an actress. Now, I played Mary in, in, into my <laughs> way longer than I should have. Um, but uh, there aren't roles, with the exception of the mother abbess in The Sound of Music, and she's usually cast, like, really character She's often cast very heavy set or right. very motherly and matronly. She's, she's not cast physically the way I look. I still look the way I looked when I was playing Christine in Phantom. I'm just older. Right. But I'm still the same size. I still sure. sing the same way. So there's there's the Mother Abbess. There's um, uh, Nettie Fowler in Carousel. June is oh. busting out all over. But again, she's usually cast A more, uh, uh, more character Then there's Margaret in Light of the Piazza. Oh, and right. when that came along, it was like, oh, hallelujah. You know, I got to play that. Oh, I played I, that at Farmer's Alley. I didn't even think Kalamazoo. about that. And that's a brilliant acting role and a beautiful, legit soprano singing role. And she's a woman in her 50s. Wow. But that is really it. Wow. Every other role is, uh, you look at the canon, you look at Mama Rose, you look at Golda. You know, they're all belty character women. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the Sopranos are supposed to do. I don't know if we just are expected to have babies and retire. And go away. Go away. Uh, or evolve the way Barbara Cook did. Mm-hmm. You know? But you don't see... But even then, Barbara didn't do shows in her later right. years. No. She never did a brilliant book musical after the grass right. And she didn't stay looking the way she always looked True. when she was young. True. So, yeah, it's a very, I don't understand it. I've never understood it. Um, like, and, and there used to be Kate in Kiss Me Kate. That was a role. Catherine Grayson did the film. That was a role that you could age into. But when they did the recent revivals with, with God Rest Your Soul, Marin Maisie, mm-hmm. and, and other ones since then, they've lowered all the keys, uh, at really? least a third. Wow, I don't think I realized that. Yeah, they so it's lowered a little more mezzo Yeah, and I went in for to audition for it uh, in the last 10 years, and the director said, oh, yeah, this is the lower key. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. And he said, yeah, it's just so, so much warmer and less shrill. You know? <laughs> and I was like, really? I think my voice is very warm. I don't know why you say that. Yeah, so so they took that one away. Wow, that's interesting. No, I got to do it in August with the Marina Del Rey Symphony, and they did, because it was a 56-piece symphony, the only keys available were the original <laughs> keys. So I got, to, I got to sing it. Oh, that's amazing. Um, but, yeah. It's but so, even with Marion, I wonder, because... Sun Foster's playing it in New York. I wonder what the keys are going to be for that. Even that, remember the TV version? Oh, yeah, they lowered it for Kristen, and Kristen had the high notes, but they lowered it. They They hired a soprano and then changed the keys. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. At some point, we decided that in order to be a smart woman, you couldn't be a soprano, is what it looks like to me. Yeah, and it... It doesn't really make sense to me. Why do they... Why are they equated... Yeah. You know, why can't you sing high and beautifully and be a woman of substance? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Do you and, like, Rebecca Luker just get together and have these conversations? <laughs> in, my, in my mind, like, that's what I do. I wish. I mean, I could see us having it. I, I don't get to see her very often. And it was funny because um, she was always a step ahead of me in New York. So one of the reasons I left New York, um, partly because my husband Andy wanted to come out here and do more film and TV. And at the time, there wasn't much film and TV in New, in York. New York. Now there is a ton. But back then there wasn't, 22 years ago when we moved out here. Um, but one of the reasons I did was I all... It seemed to me that my option were, was to stay in Phantom. All roads seemed to lead back to Phantom, and I was really ready to do something else. Or to understudy Rebecca and whatever she was doing next. <laughs> Be Rebecca's alternate yeah. and Phantom. Because she was always, she was always that, just one step ahead of me. You know, she'd been there longer. She, sure. she, you know, that's just the way things played out. 
That's and I love her. I think she's terrific. Oh, she is wonderful. Beautiful soprano and lovely person. What, uh, because you spent so much time with Phantom, do you feel like Christine is a, is a smart person? <laughs> is like a <laughs> oh, strong, you know what? That's, a, a, that's a very valid question because um, I... I think that when we first started, because, you know, we were the, I started with the national tour, so there was Broadway and there was L.A., mm -hmm. and then we were the next company. I think when we first started, there was a school of thought that she was supposed to be played really dumb. Mm. She's just like this wide-eyed. Yeah, and I didn't get that at all. I played her as a woman struggling with the loss of her father who had this talent and didn't really know what to do with it. Wow, and, I didn't even think about that. And this voice appears in her dressing room, and he's coaching her. He's teaching her how to sing, and she's got she's she's really ambitious. She takes over for Carlotta and mm -hmm. sings this aria at the top of the show. So, uh, and she's confused by all of it. She's mm -hmm. confused because because he's mixed up in her mind as this father figure and mentor and teacher, and yet there's obviously a component where of mystery and allure. Uh, I, I didn't choose to go to this sexual place as some, some people, like in the sequel, I guess they've slept together. Yeah. And that's just totally gross to me because if they did, it was in the boat and she wakes up in the boat and has very hazy memories and that means what happened there. Sure. Like, in the, yeah, Christine, so me too. <laughs> you know, I, I don't even want to think about that because to me, he was a father figure and a mentor and that's why she went with Raoul at the mm -hmm. end. Um, not because he was deformed. Yeah, you know, well, and, and, and that is a, it's a deeper choice for Christine as well because then it doesn't have really anything to do with the the malformity of his face. Right. Even though it was his soul, she says it to him. Even though from his perspective it is. Right. You know, that right. of course you couldn't love me because da 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 and right. she's like, No, it's because I think of you as my dad. And because of you've done all these horrible things. You well, killed Bouquet well, and, that's you, fair and you've got <laughs> Raoul in a noose, you're gonna kill him in a minute and all that stuff. You know, you he's he's done some despicable things. That's fascinating. Because he was picked on, you know. I, right. I, <laughs> <laughs> not without blame, these yeah, men. In, yeah. in, uh, so I chose not to play her dumb. I mean, she's certainly, the way it, the show is written, she's not as complex a character. And, and a lot of that is just, you know, choices that you make. I would, I would have loved to have seen you do it. Because I think that it, uh, on the page, to me, she seems a little victim-y. I got a note from Hal... I went through, I pulled, I've saved them all. He was a prolific writer. Really? And I would send him birthday cards. and he would, Prince, by the way. He would write me back. And um, when after he passed this summer, I pulled out all my notes from him and just laid them out on the desk and reread them. And some of them I had forgotten. And when one of them, he, he said something about uh, how much he appreciated my intelligence in the role. Oh, um, what a great compliment. I, yeah, I really took that to heart. All right, sorry, back to music, man. <laughs> we get to see kind of the first big push for Harold Hill to, to try and court Marion in the library scene. That, right. That so that, yeah, that's after seventy. So he's he's already Probably started wooing right. the town in seventy seventy six, and mm. she's having no part of it. Yes. And so then he tries her, with her again, and she says, "I have a shelf full of books in there, which will expose you." So you you know, I'm not as easily hoodwinked and mesmerized as some people in this town. Nice. So uh, so then he follows her in the library, and that's another example of Anna White's brilliant choreography the the use of the books and the rolling library cart mm -hmm. and uh, the the students getting rambunctious with their dance while being uh, completely quiet because they're in the library i'm um, also 
kind of obsessed with the fact that the kids go to the library to hang out. <laughs> like, I don't think we give enough time enough time to the That's to the fact that yeah. they're all in the library, really loving life. <laughs> yeah, I want that. I want that. I want to live in that town. Yeah. But you're exactly right, especially with the the kind of hook, the dun da 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 and then you've got this rhythmic stamping of uh-huh. the books that f- fits so perfectly in it. it it's, just, it's another one of those songs that sounds like exactly what it should be mm-hmm. in this. And it makes you wonder if they named her Marion just so he could <laughs> rhyme with Librarian for this song. Fair enough. You know, what if that, how early in the process that happened? Yeah. Or if it was just a coincidence? I mean, it's a <laughs> fantastic coincidence yeah. if that's the case. In terms of your arc with the character, by the end of Mary and the Librarian, where, is she, where does she stand with him? Uh, I think she's sexually attracted to him. Mm. Uh, he gets in her face a lot in that number, and, uh, and she gets carried away in some of the dancing, and she hasn't danced with a man in a long time, and he's obviously very attractive. I think she found him attractive the first time she saw him, but that number in the library is the first time she allows herself to give in a little bit, and that even makes her more angry. So, because she catches herself at the end, and he sticks the marshmallow in her mouth, and she goes to slap him, and she misses, and she hits Tommy Gillis instead. Oh, that's right. So, the next time she sees him, she's just as furious, and she's she's furious at him, and she's furious at herself. Okay, my first experience with The Music Man was in a, like a community theater production when I was in high school. And the Tommy G list, I can't remember what happened, hmm. but he, I, they brought me in, like, final dress to learn, to learn the show. And I was so, the, my one memory of the whole thing was that I was so flustered, I kept saying, Jelly Kill. Instead of Julie Clyde. It's like, Jelly Kill. Well, it makes just as much sense. Yeah, I mean, well, what are you going to do, right? Okay, uh, what happens after Marion the Librarian? Uh, he, he he shows up on her front porch, and he's wooing Mrs. Peru. And yes. Winthrop comes out and says a few sentences. Because he's so excited. Time. Yeah, he's, he's excited about the band uniforms. He's going to get measured for a band uniform, and he asks if there's going to be a big, wide oh, a, a stripe, stripe up the side. So, cute. so um, and she witnesses this, and that's she's already angry that she gave in, and now he sees it. Now she sees that he's working on her family, and especially her kid brother, who's hurting and vulnerable. And that's when she really lets loose on him. That's the harshest that she is with him, uh, and that leads right into my white knight. It's interesting that your director talked about this idea that Marion could be Winthrop's my mom wife. because there is a. A real protectiveness, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way that, like a a a, a woman post divorce would be about, like a new guy trying to mm-hmm. trying to get in with the kid, not knowing what the commitment or the future of the relationship is right. going to be. Like, how dare you get my son to fall in love with you, and when, when right. you may be gone the next day, right. you know? Uh, there is kind of that that play. Then she sings "My White Night," which is fantastic. It's really an aria. It is, mm-hmm. and. I, I remember in Barbara Cook's book, she talks about how she would give herself uh, like a task to help keep the show fresh when she was in New York. And one of the ones that she always liked to give herself was, how courageous are you going to be to communicate and act this song without needing to move around a mm. lot? Which I thought is a really interesting way of looking at it. Because yeah. she's a very active performer, emotionally yeah. speaking. Yeah. But then how do you communicate that without feeling like you need to right. move a lot? 
And that's the kind of song that can hold that kind of dramatic power, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the end of Act One, though. No. Uh, Wells Fargo. Yeah, Wells, Wells Fargo, Fargo happens. Right after that, Yeah, right? I have this love of Wells Fargo because then you really, especially in community theater productions, you get to see all of the different yeah. solos. <laughs> yeah. And you... I bought a box of maple syrup <laughs> on my birthday. Exactly. And you're like, that guy probably works for the post office during the day. Yeah. Like, this little girl wants to be Annie so bad. Right. Like, you just get to see yeah, all the Yeah, and I've done quite a few of those kind of productions where they would bring in um, three or four or five, you know, equity actors from someplace, and then the rest of the company would be locals. locals. My friend Audrey, she says, uh, there are a lot of neighbors in that production. <laughs> <laughs> so sweet. I've always wanted to see a production of Music Man in Fresno, because All in right. my mind, somebody goes, I hope I get my raisins from Fresno, and the whole audience just, like, bursts into <laughs> applause. That's Like what they I'm, do at rock concerts, yeah. when they say, hey, Chicago! Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you do it at the Music Man. That's my dream. That's my musical theater. Dream. Uh, so, Thister Thister, mm-hmm. Winthrop gets his cornet. Is it his cornet from the Wells Fargo wagon, which is a Harold del- Hill personally hands it to him. Which is a delivery system, I guess yes. we should say. Like the Wells Fargo wagon. That's how they got their packages. Is the Amazon right of this day? So it's bringing all the packages. Harold Hill gives the cornet to Winthrop. He's elated, and all fear of the lisp completely goes away. Yep, and. She hey. can't help but be touched by that. Right. He says three or four sentences just full of S's. <laughs> the most S's uh-huh. that you could possibly the have. Scrumptious solid gold thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that melts her heart. And she decides, after having found this information that will ultimately mm-hmm. prove that he is a fake. A fake. That he didn't go to the K- Gary Conservatory conservation class of odd five. <laughs> you have done this well a few times. Uh, and she decides to destroy the evidence, yeah? Yeah, well, she doesn't destroy it, but she tears it out and puts it in a safe place. Oh, she doesn't nice. give it to the mayor. All right. Oh, oh, we forgot the quartet. Oh, yes, the barbershop quartet. I love that in 2019, people still lose their minds. Like, oh, yeah. You could, you could have that barbershop quartet perform at a high school, you, you know, we could have high school kids come to see Music Man, and they would still kill. Yeah. People lose their minds over that stuff. What yeah. do you think it is? I don't know. I think it's something about the, the tight harmonies and the just the, um, the way the barbershop tradition of being in really close and then to expand into a wider chord with that straight tone and that swell and the cut, a really good barbershop sound is so electric. My mom sang with the Sweet Adelines for years, the what, Sweet Adeline chorus. It's the female version of the barbershop. Um, oh. uh, what are they called? Ooh, I can't think of They have a – it's a nationwide like – actually, it's international. Really? It's international, and they have competitions, and they have quartet competitions, and then they have chorus competitions. And the chorus, that's what my mom did. She was in the chorus. And the choruses are huge. They can be 150, 200 people. And they stand on risers, and the front row does choreography. Oh. And the back rows do hand choreography here and there. And they sing these incredible barbershop arrangements. And I went... They were, oh, where, I don't remember where it was, but my mom's chorus, which they were the rich tones outside Dallas-Fort Worth, Richardson, Texas, is that right? The rich tones. And they were an award-winning chorus. And uh, I went to, they were in the international, they were in the national finals, I think, and uh, they were rehearsing uh, 
And I went into the room and listened to them rehearse for a half an hour. And I can't tell you how many times they would just hit a chord. Every hair on my body would stand straight up and tears would just spurt from my eyes. Like I wouldn't feel emotional. <laughs> I wouldn't feel like, oh, I'm going to cry. I would just suddenly go, oh, tears are spurting out of my eyes. <laughs> it was a physical response to wow. these chords, to the harmonics, to the overtones, to the pure tone of of these uh, 160 voices all coming together and the way they start in one place and all slide in opposite directions and all land at the same time it's just electric and that's wow. when when these four guys do it in 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 the midst of having these goofy characters and these arguments when they just burst into these really pure barbershop sounds I, I think it's it's always very effective and such a genius way of incorporating into the story as well mm-hmm. that they're the that they're the school board who can't get along mm-hmm. until he until he teaches them how to sing, and he hears them all kind of arguing uh-huh. in their registers right. and, and and identifies their timbres as being uh-huh. perfect for barbershop, which kind of leads you to think that maybe he does know a little bit about yeah. music. Yeah, And so then she's, he says, you know, to the women of the town, like, you'll never see these four apart. And they're like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, crazy. But then he's totally uh-huh. right. Uh-huh. They find this harmony that they haven't been able to find as colleagues. Yeah. And and uh, very effectively used throughout the show in different like you were asking me earlier if I had a favorite moment in mm-hmm. the show. One of my favorite moments in the show is singing Light a Rose singing my counterpoint to Light a Rose. Um, I love that. I, I love it so much that I put it in my solo show. And then they come back and sing that again after Charlie Cowell lays the bombshell on her about how many women he's been with and that was another one of my favorite moments because they would do this crossing of this beautiful light of rose stuff and they would go good evening Miss Marion and that was a really nice um, way for me to get to the emotional space I needed to be in for Harold's re-entrance after I after I've just heard that he's got a woman a music teacher in every town and oof that's heavy yeah how great that you have something musical to get you mm-hmm. into, you know. Because, For me, music is always yeah. Fun. Yeah. Well, and I think it is. Even when you were saying, I, I wasn't even necessarily emotionally moved by this, right. but the just because of the way that it sound, right. my body involuntarily that's have, responded. That's why we have film scores. Yeah. Because your body responds to the spooky music and the Jaws music and the and the swell of of, of beautiful vistas. You you have a physical response to that. Uh, act two begins with Shapoopy. Yes, and that, that that is my least favorite moment in the show. Is it? How come? Uh, mm, I it, it's it feels formulaic to me. Uh, it's and I, even though I've done it several different times, and we've done it some different ways, it's always you end up standing up and flapping your arms and doing this goofy dance. Um, uh, I don't Welcome know. Welcome to my life. <laughs> <laughs> like, how am I going to make this one work? Yeah, and I don't... The song itself, I find a little bit uh, problematic in today's, you know, I just... Oh, I don't think I've ever even listened to the... Yeah. the a woman who'll kiss on the very first date is, is usually, usually a hussy. And the woman who kiss the second time out is anything, anything but fussy. fussy. Yeah, and the third time around, she, you know, she's a, glad, she's a girl I'm glad I found. She's my shapoopy. Yeah, so... It's the a girl little... who's hard to get. Yeah. I mean, is it meant to be? Is it meant to be you? Is it meant to be Marion? Mm, oh, I don't think so. Like the girl who's hard to get is your shapoopy. Oh, gosh, I never thought of it that way. 
I don't know. I, it's Marcellus. You know, I, yeah. I have to talk to some Marcelluses and see how they, <laughs> I'm what sure they think. They did a lot. <laughs> I'm sure Buddy Hackett really like get, picked um, apart. Get Jason Graw in here. <laughs> I'm Jason, sure he has a lot of opinions. Jason, tell me about Marcellus and why he's the most important part of the Music Man. Uh, but great choreography. Yeah. Why not? You yeah. get to see the kids dance their faces off. Uh, after that, this is this is when it becomes a love story. Yeah. 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 And um, it's all kind of leading up to this... It's the ice cream sociable. Oh, it was a different time. <laughs> uh, I'm actually kind of interested now, after having had, the, having had this conversation of, of like moving to River City, and, but only in the Music Man time period. Right, right. Because I want to have parties at the library mm-hmm. and ice cream sociables. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. Gay rides probably don't exist. No. But that's okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They have to meet somewhere behind the footbridge. They couldn't meet on the footbridge. <laughs> Just under the footbridge. <laughs> like a little troll. <laughs> let's, let's actually skip right till, till there was you, if you don't mind. Okay. Oh, actually, Char- no, we should talk about Charlie Cow. Yeah, well, there's the Charlie Cow moment where he exposes him for what he really is. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and she still makes a decision uh, to, to stick up for him. To stick up for him, uh, uh, and um, I, I, another component, since you mentioned being thrust into the role of Tommy Chilas, yep. is that he's kind of important in in Marion's transformation as well. Tommy is, yeah, because he wasn't he wasn't kind of a bad kid. Oh, he that was is kind true. of a ne'er do well. And Harold giving him tasks, getting giving him mechanically Something minded, giving him the place for a flute player to hold his music. Mm-hmm. You know, it it took him off the streets. Yeah, it it, it because. I think because he had heard for so long that he was a bad kid, he started to believe it. And Harold was the first one who said, you're not a bad kid, you know. It makes me really think about Harold Hill's background. Yeah. Like, was he that kid? Right. Did he just kind of raise himself and figure out how to make a living and then in the meanwhile kind of gain a sense of empathy for anybody who mm-hmm. who doesn't have someone to believe in them? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think this is a good moment... Because since we're talking about Charlie, the salesman, and you know, calling out Harold Hill for what he is, which is a con man, mm-hmm. that this, in many ways, not just because of how it sounds and because it takes place in the heart of America, it is a quintessentially American musical. Mm-hmm. Harold Hill, this type of character who, in many ways, is like the epitome of the American dream, right? There is a little bit of the think system in every immigrant mm-hmm. that comes to this country thinking, I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm going to believe that it will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and kind of that, the craziness of that is something that we really esteem as American. It's why I think the music man feels very patriotic to people. Mm-hmm. I think it's why P.T. Barnum is a controversial character mm-hmm. that we continually write about and, I mean, with The Greatest Showman, celebrate. Uh, and I think it also, getting political here, I also think that it is kind of a gateway in into having a personality like we have in the White House and the polarity of the country and looking at that, mm-hmm. uh, looking at President Trump. Because in recently watching The Music Man, I couldn't help but feel like, oh, this is how Trump supporters view 
progressives, quote-unquote, the Charlie Cowles who come in and say, this is, this is a con man, Mm-hmm. This is someone who is only out to for himself mm-hmm. and and then everybody else are you know the supporters saying it doesn't really matter because what he represents and gives to me is much more than what you're complaining about right and even more than that the whole trouble him stirring up the town and making them worried about that is exactly what what Trump did when he was running with the whole wall, the border wall, and the Mexicans and the rapists and all that. It's very similar. Really stirring up. Uh, Give them something to unif- to rally around um, and to get behind. Regardless of if it's true or not, or not. Yeah, right. valid or not. It makes me wonder, what is the difference between President Trump and Harold Hill? Hmm. Like, why, why are we okay in musical theater with Harold Hill but not President Trump? Well, besides the obvious that one is a enter- piece of entertainment sure, and one sure. is real life, um, yeah. there's also the um, what's at stake. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah, a bunch of boys true. in their band uniforms, or versus democracy as we know it, or, <laughs> <laughs> or you know, wars breaking out, you know, mm-hmm. international relationships and um, allies and all of that. I mean, there's much more at stake here yeah. than, than what's at stake in in the, mu- in the musical. I also think that in terms of the person. Harold Hill paints himself to, excuse me, surely be a a savior of the town, and in many ways, as we said, uh, kind of had to convince them they needed a savior first of all. But he does take himself off the pedestal. Mm-hmm. We we get the cathartic moment in the musical of him of once it's come out that he, you know, is is kind of a con, a fake, that he sits down Winthrop. And it's very interesting that specifically it's this little boy, and he says, I will tell you the truth about anything you ask. And what does Winthrop ask? Are you a fake? Yes. And he tells the truth. He says mm-hmm. exactly who he is to this little yeah. boy. And I find it interesting that it's to Winthrop, and it's not Marion, and it's not anybody in the town. It's the most innocent, who's gained the most, if you will, mm-hmm. from his presence. Mm-hmm. And, and that moment of truth is, I think, really helpful to us as an audience and f- to continue finding these characters endearing. Whereas I just, I, I think maybe collectively we don't get that from our current president. No, no sense of uh, self-awareness or own, aware of his own flaws or any of that. I, I think that might be, for me, yeah. Yeah. kind of the key to to thinking that Harold Hill isn't just a total scumbag. Mm-hmm. The cool thing is that I guess Marion has has reached the point in herself where she doesn't need the truth. I don't know. What do you think? Well, she what she says to Winthrop is that it doesn't really matter that he gave you guys something to dream about, not just him, but herself and the ladies and the barbershop quartet and mm-hmm. she's she she has seen with her own eyes what he what he did for the town just by giving them something to dream about, to plan for, to... And that big emotional complex, of course, happens, of course, <laughs> during the ice cream sociable. Right. right. And one of my favorite things about musicals, a chase scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love a good chase uh-huh. scene. Let's rewind just a little bit before that, though, and talk about Till There Was You, mm-hmm. which 
I think is kind of a tricky scene because it includes one of the longest kisses. <laughs> <laughs> but it's orchestrated. Yeah, it's underscored. Exactly. So you just kind of have, I mean, when I did Crazy for You, I felt like that was one of the longest kisses because you've been dancing so uh-huh. hard. And so you don't actually kiss. You just breathe. You just breathe on <laughs> the other, other person into their, each other's mouths like CPR style. <laughs> And everyone's like, oh, it's so romantic. You're like, it's disgusting. (laughs) So at least it's not that. But still, it's very, very long. And can easily just become, I think, a prom pose and a pretty song. Yeah, see, I've never thought of it that way because I I think of it as an incredibly passionate um, song and kiss. Mm. I mean, uh, this woman has not been kissed Ooh, a really good long point. time, and she cho- in my version. Every time I've done it, I've kissed him. Oh. He did not kiss me. Suffrage. Yeah. Well, first, first he's trying to explain, and she puts her fingers on his mouth, and she's like, "No, no, you don't understand. <laughs> my life. You have opened up my life. I never heard the bells. I never saw the birds. You know, you have, you have given me all of this, and it doesn't matter if I never see you again because I will have had this. But before you go, <laughs> I'm might gonna, as well. I am going to kiss you and kiss you like I mean it. That's so, so I I have never felt promposy about it. That's so great. Yeah. I love that. Now Marion has the entire. I mean, she kind of sings the entire thing mm-hmm. first, right? Right. And then does he? He joins her after the kiss. Does he sing it by himself a little bit? After he confesses to Winthrop, and and I and he says, "I wish you'd never come to River City," mm-hmm. and I say, "No, you don't. Look, mm-hmm. look at all the stuff he gave us." And then I say, "Now go, Harold. They're, they're about to get you." And Winthrop says, "Go," and he says, "I can't." And and he says, "Why not?" And he says, "For the first time, I got my foot caught in the door." Oh, that's right. And then, and then, and then, then he, he sings, sings the little reprise. just a tiny little reprise, and he doesn't even get to finish it. Really, the guys come out and grab him, and he gets taken to the um, gymnasium. Because I'm I'm just now thinking. That for Marion, she's she's realizing, right till there was you. I didn't realize that this is how life could be till you came in, and I think on some level he's like, I didn't realize I was even capable of doing that for someone until right. you just told me. Right. So. And the fact that here's a woman with all the facts, and she's not turning him in. Yeah. She's not. Like, talk about self sabotage, having to front confront what you've always feared and. And what you fear is maybe somebody loving you for who you are. Right. It's really powerful. So they bring they bring him kind of tar and feather style to await trial, if you will, because <laughs> every musical has a trial of some kind. <laughs> and the town realizes that they feel a little grateful for everything that he's done. Yeah, because of Marion's speech. That's right. Yeah, because everybody's like saying, I haven't seen, you know, no one knows where their kids are, and they're out 40 bucks or whatever much Mm -hmm. for their band uniforms, and everyone's sort of piling on, and then she shuts them down. And she said, have you forgotten what this town was like before he came here? Mm -hmm. You know? And so um, everyone sort of gets on her bandwagon again until, after she's finished, the mayor says... Well, let's just remember one thing. He promises a band. Where's the band? Where's the band? Where's the band? <laughs> and then the band enters. Yes. With all of these Ragtag, adorable little uh-huh. kids in ill-fitting band suits. Terrible band suits uh-huh. with their instruments. Mm-hmm. And it's such a fantastic ending to the musical because we have all been to, or at least I have, to many a dance recital, mm-hmm. many a soccer game of my nieces and nephews, where 
everyone's just like yelling on stage or onto the field of what they should be doing. Uh-huh. And it certainly isn't like good. <laughs> right. There's no level of expertise there's, there's going no, on. There's no, there's very little yeah. skill. And yet the kids are having a great time and the parents are bursting, are yeah. even happier. Yeah. You know? And that's ultimately what happens. They all start playing horribly, Mm -hmm. and the town is just so ecstatic to see their little kid even Mm -hmm. try Mm -hmm. to be passionate about a musical instrument. Did you have any of that when you were little? Did you have... Yeah, I played, I started, um, when I started junior high, the high school band director came around to all the junior highs. We had three in our town back then. And uh, he would say, look, there's a high school band. We're award-winning. It's a great opportunity to learn an instrument. And he went into all the junior highs and recruited, basically, and helped us, help set us up with lessons. And um, uh, I got a clarinet when I was in the seventh grade. And Started playing in the junior high orchestra, and then I oh, played cool. in the high school band, and then I, I even played it into college. It was Did part, you really? It was part of my college scholarship. Um, was clarinet? Yeah, I was all state band. I was first chair. Oh I my was gosh. a pretty good clarinetist, although I just decked it out a little while ago, and it was disastrous. <laughs> it was the ugliest sound you ever heard. Well, but that that kind of goes for most instruments. Inevitably, like woodwinds in particular, sound like dying animals. Yeah, my dad used to come in and say, who's skinning a cat in here? Oh, shoot. <laughs> or maybe that was when I was singing. I'm not going to. Oh, <laughs> that's horrible. Same with, like, violins. I can't oh, yeah. imagine. So bad. Oof. Yeah, I had an argument with a guy once. We were doing Seven Brides or Seven Brothers at this dinner theater in Rockville, Maryland. And we were, uh, at the end of Seven Brides, we all get married. And we had a small orchestra, and the violinist was just awful. (laughs) And every day he would play that e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-e-
So it's definitely loved where I'm from. I hope that it will continue to be done. I the the fact remains is that it's about a time when when the culture of women was like you just get married. So that's like a huge yeah. that's a huge part of the plot and I sometimes wonder if shows like this or My Fair Lady, like audiences just won't care to see those kinds of stories about mm-hmm. women anymore. Yeah, I mean, there are there are things that are becoming uh, we're, we're becoming more aware of being problematic in that regard. Like even Carousel with the abuse sure. and um, My Fair Lady, like with the slippers at the end. Yeah, uh, it's like yeah, I I can get that. I I think Music Man less so because by the end they're really meeting they're as partners. equals. You're right. Um, he's given up. A fair amount to, to make the decision to stay and, and oh, that's actually and a really that good. Life. That's a really good point to bring up is that we feel that by the end she has tamed him yeah. as much as he has opened her eyes. Yeah, that he's that he's not going to continue. He no, is, he's setting he a shot next to Marcellus, and he's going to actually lead the, lead the band. And Marion is a great partner to have because right. she's she, she actually, actually knows about music. Right, he has the dream, and she has the know how, and they'd make a great team. And a house. He doesn't even need to buy a house. <laughs> can move Widow Peru into into Winthrop's room or maybe in the closet under the staircase. That's right. <laughs> so when the show opened, Barbara Cook has this amazing story about what Meredith Wilson gave her for oh. opening that gift, and I wanted to read it from her book. Uh, she says, On opening night, he gave me the most beautiful present, a heart from Tiffany. When you opened the heart, you had two hearts, and when you opened that further, it became a four-leaf clover. Oh, my gosh. On the inside of each of those four hearts, he had engraved the beginning bars of all four of my big songs in the show. Then when you closed the heart up, on one side it said Barbara, and on the other it said Marion. Wow. It was, this, it was so thoughtful, the nicest opening night gift I've ever received. I guess. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. And all, everything that I've read about him says that he's a very he was a very warm, congenial, nice guy to work with, mm-hmm. which I think is especially for someone who seems to be really interested in is working by himself or at least like taking credit for his mm-hmm. his work is kind of impressive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We already talked about the fact that it came out the same time as West Side Story, but at the Tony Awards that year, it won uh, Best Musical, Barbara Cook won Best Featured Actress, which is strange. That I think, is strange. I think it's, it was a, a thing about Robert Preston's name was above the title, so he was leading uh. actor, but then she was like down a ways, so then she became... Anyway, it's those weird rules. Oh my gosh, I think I, I was totally wrong. It was actually 1958. Here I've been saying 1957. Oh, yeah, 58 it was 1958. Was, was Music Man. Yeah, 1958 was Music Man. So then, sorry, I pulled out my book here. Uh, so the best musical nominees in 1958 were West Side Story, New Girl in Town, The Music Man, Oh Captain, which was a total flop, mm. and just has like a nudie girl on the. Like, I think it was a return to like businessman nudie musicals, which was weird. And then Jamaica. And the Music Man was the thing that won pretty much everything. So, interesting, interesting year. How many years later was the film of West Side Story? Ooh, good question. Let me look. And I'm wondering if it if it was made a film before Music Man was. I think Music Man was first. first. Okay, Music Man. The film was 1962. West Side was 61. 
Suicide was first. Wow, I didn't realize that. Maybe because Music Man was a big enough hit on Broadway and touring, etc., that it, that they felt like they didn't need to make a musical version? Hmm. I don't know. A film, you mean? Yeah. Oh, you see, yeah, sorry, a film version. Yeah. That's interesting. Does Barbara talk about not getting the movie? She was No, she uh, left Music Man because she got pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so she was just interested in... Um, being the raising, mom. Yeah, mm-hmm. being the mom, raising the family. And you know, Shirley was pregnant during the footbridge scene. Yes. <laughs> well, it's really funny to see her, because they took such a long time to make yeah. those movies, those you know big yeah. musicals at they that point. They tried to hide it as best they could, but so, you can totally see it. Yeah, yeah, especially during that footbridge yeah. scene. They're, they've, like, squeezed her in. <laughs> that not the famous story that she was hugging Robert Preston? Yeah. And it was the embrace. It was the, and, it was and, the big and one. And she felt, he felt... A, a, a and she hadn't told anybody. Because, yeah, because Morn DaCosta had said, all right, she had told him, the director. Right. And he was like, okay, but just don't tell anybody else. Right. And then Robert Preston fills the kick, and I was like, what? <laughs> what was that? And then she says, that was Patrick Cassidy. <laughs> yeah, she told that story in our little tour that we did. It's a great story. Yeah. Terry Bibb, well, let's see what, yeah, it's time. Thank you so much <laughs> for you. having a conversation with me. As always, if you have an idea for a show that you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email us at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at amusicalpodcast. Thank you, Meredith Wilson. Thank you, Anna White, Barbara Cook, Robert Preston, for giving us some great material to talk about. And Terry, I worship you. Ah, sweetest. Thanks, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.